0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another podcast of The Addicted Mind. My name is Dwayne Osterlund, and I'm your host. We have a great episode today. Today, our guest is Dr. Andrew Hill, and he is the founding director of Peak Brain. And what's really interesting about this story is that Dr. Hill and I were introduced by a mutual colleague And I was always interested in neurofeedback and how that impacted the brain. And Andrew invited me in to do a brain scan to check out my brain, so I did. And from there, I started actually doing the neurofeedback. And I have to say, it has had a pretty profound effect on me, especially around focus, attention, and sleep. I was a little bit skeptical at first of how you could sit in front of a screen and watch what is kind of attuned to a video game and tune your brain and influence how your brain functions and operates so i asked dr hill to come onto the podcast and and talk about it and talk about what's going on and what's happening in the brain as this process is unfolding so i think you'll enjoy this episode it definitely Was super interesting to me. And I think it'll be super interesting to you as well, especially since I can bring my own experience to this and attest to how this works. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope you get a lot out of it. This is definitely an option for you to help with your brain. So if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help. It gets the podcast a lot of exposure and think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join and continue the conversation online. All right, let's go ahead and start this episode.
1: All right, everybody. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Andrew Hill. He's the founder of Peak Brain. And today we are going to talk about all things neurofeedback and what that means and how that can help somebody. Andrew, please introduce yourself.
2: Oh, thanks for having me, Dwayne. So I'm Andrew Hill. I am, again, as you said, the founder of Peak Brain Institute, which is a sort of gym for the brain. We are neuroscientists that help people basically take control of their own neuroscience, the same way your favorite personal trainer at your gym helps you learn how to you know move through transformation goals uh to both assess and transform your body so i have a long experience working in neurofeedback this thing we call brain training and uh, i also have a long addiction experience which is useful i think for this podcast absolutely and i taught a lot at ucla for about oh about a dozen years mostly in things like gerontology you know the neuroscience of aging and development and peak aging and things like that which sort of dovetails a little bit with the work I do at now Peak Brain because we're sort of a, a brain optimization company across life stages for some people. So we have childhood-focused things with regards to perhaps childhood seizures or autism or ADHD. We got elder stuff with regards to you know cognitive aging and brain fog and wor- uh, uh, word-finding issues, ironically. right. And then we have everyone in the middle who has all kinds of optimization challenges, which include both high performance goals, as well as a lot of suffering
1: sometimes for us. But yeah, peak is a network of gyms, essentially for the brain. Yeah. So uh, what I want to talk about is what neurofeedback is. But I also before we get into that, I want to say, you know, we got connected through a colleague. And I'm always interested in this stuff. That's one of the reasons I do this podcast. I'm always investigating this stuff. And we talked briefly and you said, well, come on in. Why don't you just come on in and do a brain scan? And I'm like, all right, I'll do that. So we did that, which was very, very fascinating and interesting to see that. And then we tried some of the neurofeedback and you said, well, keep going. So I've been doing it. And so it's been pretty profound, actually. And I'd love I to hear and not to make this changes. me interview. So you know. we're going to, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit and get into that. But before we do that, let's just first go, what is neurofeedback? What does that even mean? Yeah. And what's going on there?
2: Sure. So neurofeedback is biofeedback or a form of a con- control or shaping or exercise of stuff in your brain or your something nervous system specifically. So all neurofeedback is a form of biofeedback, but not all forms of biofeedback are done in the brain. So they're not all. Neurofeedback. Like you can do hand warming or skin conductance or heart rate variability is a really powerful tool that's uh, used a lot these days for biofeedback as well as for things like assessing sleep and looking right. at our heart rate changes and things will give you sleep staging sometimes pretty well. So we're essentially taking something you're not usually aware of, like in this case, brain waves or blood flow, and we're raising that information up to a level the brain can interact with it. And I, I say the brain, not the mind, because One of the big differences between classic biofeedback, relaxation therapy, et cetera, and neurofeedback is that most forms of neurofeedback are largely involuntary because you can't feel your brain waves. You can't really feel your blood flow. The brain has no sensory nerve endings. can't feel your brain. So if you're having a headache, it's not your brain, honestly. It's the stuff just outside. It's the muscles, the meninges, the scalp, the skull, et cetera. So in the case of neurofeedback, we measure... Some measurement, some some little circuit in the brain, it's electrical pattern. It's the amount of activation it has, the amount of idle it has, the amount of lubrication it has in different sort of modules and modes. And we'll say, uh, essentially, most forms of nerve feedback are a passive form of conditioning called operant conditioning. But it's this involuntary form where we watch, like, for instance, the first thing you did, the first 20-minute session you did, we trained a frequency in the brain called SMR which was how the field of neurofeedback was discovered actually 50 plus years ago. And I'll give you that story if you want. But we start there and we we measure a circuit on the right-hand side of the brain that is involved in supervisory attention, essentially knowing if you're paying attention. And we measure the amount of theta and the amount of beta you're making, a a low-frequency specific beta wave called SMR. And... We just measure it moment to moment. And whenever your brain happens to make a little bit less theta, a little bit more beta for half a second, the computer goes, ooh, good job, brain, and applauds by making auditory and visual stuff in the environment start to happen. The brain's like, whoa, stuff's happening. Hey, wait, huh, interesting stuff. And then a couple seconds later, the brain moves in the other direction, so to speak, for the workout. The theta goes back up. The beta might dip. And the software slows down. The car slows down. The puzzle pieces stop filling in. The Pac-Man stalls. And the brain's like, hey, I I like stuff. Where's the stuff? A couple of seconds later, happens to move in the right direction. Computer resumes the applause. The big trick here is we move the goalposts. So every few seconds, we adjust what we're asking for. So when you were sitting there for your first 20 minutes, and your brain made some little moments where it reduced the theta and raised the beta, the computer applauded that. And then after a few minutes we asked for an even lower amount of theta and an even higher amount of beta. And your brain had to trend across that direction to make the game run. And it's mostly involuntary. You can't feel your beta waves, your theta waves. Right. So my guess is you didn't feel too much initially. People usually don't. But after about three or four sessions, you get this lingering effect that tends to show up for a couple hours to about a day, And it tends to impact the resources you have trained, like your sleep, stress, and attention. So you get noticeable changes, like you worked out. Oh, wait,
1: I'm feeling something. Huh. Right. That's exactly my experience. It's like my focus is just stronger without as Mm. much effort. I don't know how to explain that. It's very... It's just different, but it feels easier. So that's part of the experience. But first, let's kind of go in to the first part, which is where we map the brain, because that's the first thing you did. So let's talk about that and kind of paint this picture, because as you're talking, I have the picture of my brain map in my Mm -hmm. head, but I know maybe the audience listening doesn't know what we're talking about. So let's talk about that first and set that frame, and then we'll keep going. Sure. The field of neurofeedback was discovered in about 1966 or 7, the way it's
2: done now. The field of brain mapping called QEEG or quantitative EEG is probably older than that. And to some extent, QEEG comes out of sleep studies, sleep research, sleep history. And EEG is among the oldest forms of neuroimaging. We used it even before we had electricity, believe it or not. They were able to bounce reflected light waves off of a rabbit cortex and make a bit of water shimmer in response to a brainwave and create reflection on the wall like 100 years ago. Well, we had electricity then, but this is a very primitive tech in some ways. We've been seeing as a phenomena for a long time, brainwaves, and not really understanding it. And somewhere around the middle of the last century we started to get a handle on what big gross features of the brain looked like and we started understanding seizures and sleep and big gross changes of the brain as indicated by electricity so your brain's mostly an electrical and mechanical believe it or not machine it does like actual mechanical stuff sometimes and your brain is roughly the same your resources of your brain roughly the same the dwayness of it all is the same roughly kind of day to day you mentioned a lot compared to yourself, a little bit—a bad day, a good day. But you compared to the average guy your age, roughly the same at a high level from twenty thousand feet away in the data. So because of this, because fingerprints of the uh, the amounts of brain waves, the connectivity patterns throughout your brain based on how it's built, the speeds of your brain waves—these things change across the life course with development and uh, and with injuries, with learning. You know, year to year, they're a pretty stable metric. So we can't understand them perfectly because brains are weird, but we can look at them and say, ah, Dwayne, you've got this amount of theta compared to the average person. Oh, this amount of alpha. Oh, your alpha speed's doing this. Oh, your beta speed's doing that. And we end up tripping across what I call plausibles or hypotheses. So brain mapping hasn't moved into the medical and psychological and clinical space all that well It's remained in the research space because there's been... Dozens and dozens of people trying to start companies, write papers, et cetera, trying to find discriminants—the thing in the brain that if you measure it means this, diagnostically. Right, right. And most things don't rise that level across people. There's trends. There's interesting phenomena. People are weird. So trying to judge something as problematic by how weird you are falls over once you try to make it, you know, discrete diagnostics. So there are some things Makes that emerge. Sense. Um, in the EEG that are almost diagnostic or that are at least useful. Like for a while in the 80s and 90s, the research was supporting the idea that you could do the ratio of theta to beta on the vertex of the head and you could, you could sort blindly ADHD and non-ADHD kids, 94% accurately, ADD and inattentive uh, flavor and regular kids from each other, 81% accuracy, pretty good accuracy just on a pure data screen. And then people kept trying to replicate that study in the 90s and later. And every study, the statistics got weaker and weaker. It was this bizarre phenomenon wow. in the field. And so over about eight years, the effect, which went from like 94% specificity and super you know, tight, almost diagnostic screening, into being this really weak effect. And what we discovered or what, what the hypothesis is, is that over that 10 or 15 years total, the sleep status of America's youth fell over. And You can't oh, distinguish ADHD markers from classic sleep deprivation markers. They look the same. So, wow, that's very you know, looking at one's brain. I don't know what I'm. Why the brain is how it is. I don't know if it's an acquired pattern always or a built-in pattern or
1: something right. works fine for you so, or a problem. But yeah, so we kind of start to see these these generalized themes, but they're still really yeah, we call them phenotypes endo phenotypes
2: things that don't mean diagnostic stuff but it's like having you know blue eyes or being bald or not it's like it's a thing and it tends right. to cross stuff and like you know i'm bald i probably have higher scalp testosterone probably than you do maybe not but on right. a trend right. most bald guys would compared to most non bald guys because that's affecting dht in the hair follicles so i can go huh i was trying to affect my hair i might go after dht it's a plausible thing i wouldn't know if it was true until I looked, until I tried something, until I you know did some microbiology. In this case, we're looking at the amounts of brainwaves and saying, aha, you've got a lot of theta on this circuit involved with focus. Ooh, that gets in the way sometimes. Is that a goal for you? And I also do attention testing, which gives me a nice discrete set of metrics. So I cheat a little bit and I get the big gross features of attention in performance measured against the average person. Very easy to interpret, very valid, very straightforward. And then I get a brain map that says, here's Eight features, nine features, 12 features of your brain that are really unusual. Let's see if they get in the way like they can. Let's see if they're interesting strengths the way they often are. Let's try to figure out if these things make sense. Let's model who you are based on some data together, develops some hypotheses. You will validate which ones of those are the valid ones. You'll prioritize any goals and needs and bottlenecks. I will then
1: build your workout plan and iterate. So it's very personal training, the way we work, essentially. Right. So we we do this brain map. That's what we did, right? We mm-hmm. kind of see these overall arching kind of themes, thematics, mm-hmm. the phenotypes that you, you looked at. And then with a little bit of personal history, you're able to start to craft a treatment protocol, I guess, or a exercise protocol to optimize those things. And based on that self report, me going, Oh, yeah, that's working like this. is, I'm actually feeling different. Like I was saying earlier, like, yeah, that's actually my focus seems easier for some reason. Well, obviously, there's a reason, but you know, it just feels easier. And I want to do more of that, that gives me more function in my life, I can now focus on my tasks that I wanted to focus on, get those things done, accomplish those things. Instead of feeling those roadblocks that kind of get in the way of that purpose of what I'm trying to accomplish. I think something that really struck me when you we talked about my brain scan, you said one thing is like you mentioned that it's like you have this focus, but you've got to apply the gas pedal all the time to get the focus. And that was exactly like now that analogy makes even more sense as I've done this brain training, because I've been able to, I can see that I'm not pushing on that gas pedal. That's how you described it. I'm like, wow, this is pretty fascinating. And what's really interesting is, like you said earlier, it's very passive. Like I'm not really doing anything when I'm doing these brain trainings. I'm showing up, I'm sitting down in a chair, and I'm watching it almost like it's a video game. And yet something's going on.
2: Well the video game only runs when your brain happens to do the right thing for that day's exercise. Right, right. And the brain figures out, "Hey, wait, when I do this today, stuff's happening." Ooh, okay. And then it walks around trying to reach for stuff later on that day, and you as the person as the mind go, "Wait, wait a minute. That feels a tiny bit different. Hey, uh coach, I noticed this to your guys in OC, for instance. And, you know, I, I have a sense of what your goals are in that first conversation, the brain mapping review. A lot of my job there is to teach people to think about their brain, to understand the neuroscience, to go through it. Peak also has this policy of, we, we don't charge for the repeat maps, kind of club fee up uh, way we work. So the map, this, the secondary maps, tertiary maps, during a program, right. of course, we do. But if you want to map your brain on caffeine or cannabis or alcohol and see how you're really, you know, it takes you out, for instance, in performance or those sorts of things, you can learn something from medication statuses, caffeine, etc. So we really try to educate you broadly about your brain. But then I don't understand your brain after the brain mapping. I have some ideas, but I do understand your goals better, your perspective on yourself, what you think is important to know about, and that lets me build a. A set of like longer term goals and some ways to get there, some workouts essentially. And then everything. Everything we do neurofeedback, it's a transient effect. It doesn't create permanent change, just like a workout doesn't. You feel an activation of resource and go, oh, wait, huh, you know, after a workout. right? And in this right. case, we're gently iterating up, trying to create shifts in often sleep, stress, and attention because those are the obvious foundation features that support other higher level things. And if we get the right effect and we ask you, as you know, to fill out surveys a couple times a day and check in with us and, you know, let us know how you're varying the what your goals are. But as you notice stuff, we think we understand you more as you say stuff we expect, for instance. And then right. we build it up and we go back and map the brain every other month again. So I think we skipped the description, but we put a cap on your head, squirt it full of gel. Yeah. It's kind of messy. It's kind of annoying. You yeah, have to in yeah. uncaffeinated in the morning. It's kind of annoying yeah and then we also make you bored to tears do a 20-minute attention test that just bores you to tears
1: and looks at how you know basic resources fall over yeah when you're mapping that that brain you put this cap on it's all over your head and so it's looking at all these brain waves in different regions Mm. of your brain and putting all that data down which was also very interesting to me is that when you did that brain map you did one where my eyes were open staring mm-hmm. at a spot on the wall just for five minutes just stare at that spot mm-hmm. and then you did another one with your eyes closed for five minutes collected all that data and it, to see my brain in these two different states
2: yeah the some of that is interesting and it illuminates things across people other times it doesn't in fact the brain's much more readable on a brain map eyes closed because the forehead relaxes it's a cleaner data set without the noise of the muscles in the front of the face and the visual system in the back of the head, in theory, is unloaded with the eyes closed. So it's a cleaner data set with less expensive tissue, if you will, all woken up and activated. But right. if when your eyes were closed, if I saw lots of activation in the back of the head, if instead of producing nice relaxed alpha waves as a neutral or an idle, you kept lots of beta waves going, just ready to process vision just in case, I would have guessed that somebody with that pattern of eyes closed, visual system activated, was kind of hyper vigilant, couldn't disengage, was preparing to scan. And that might be true two-thirds of the time if I saw that back there, you know? So I would ask that question, for instance. Or the other option, you open the eyes, and instead of taking the alpha and replacing it with beta, if when the eyes are open, you're still making tons of alpha back there and it's kind of drifty and you also have a visual attention score that's crappy, I would go, oh, your visual attention isn't Shifting out of neutral very rapidly. You're a little bit inattentive, perhaps. And so by watching if the system's reacting how I expect it, we get some big gross features. And I get some, you know, course check on inattentiveness, maybe fatigue showing, you know, from that, or maybe some anxiety on the other end of the spectrum. So we can kind of get some big course features and I outline, essentially outline my ideas about what could be true for you. And then I try to build those models with more data
1: and I walk through them with you and you tell me which ones are wrong, which which is, you know, 10, 20% right. of them. Right. I mean, that it sounds like that feedback is so important to this process because, well, like you said, you're kind of having a broad brush, but you need that personal experience of like, yeah, that's working. I'm feeling this. I'm, I'm sleeping better. I'm doing this. Let's do more of it.
2: Yeah. So, so the, the validation is important in both the brain mapping and the brain training phases because I, my job is not to make you average or be concerned that you aren't at all. Like my, when I looked at the brain map, I wasn't like, whoa, you're a weird dude. Oh, that's a problem. It was more like, oh, interesting. Let's see if some of this stuff we're seeing here that's unusual has meaning for you. And then once you outlined what meaning it was, if it was valid, then I figured out if it was important to work on or a goal for you, et cetera. And the same thing right. of the neurofeedback, I have a sense of what'll work for you. Probably 70, 80% of people kind of respond how I expect. And I can build a plan. It's pretty straightforward. We can adjust and they iterate and it's great. Last 20% of people, their brains are really weird. And a brain that comes in looking like other brains with similar complaints, similar goals, doesn't respond the same way when you start doing neurofeedback. They just don't. And so you have to be very aware of the actual person's experience. And so I try not to make the decisions. I don't diagnose off of brain maps. I don't say, here's the answer. I walk through it with you and teach you to actually look at pretty low level data. It's not high level paragraphs I'm giving you. It's like heat maps of here's how much beta you got and here's how much delta you got and stuff like that. So it's,
1: it's the neuroscience, Right. And that, that in a way mirrors my experience in mental health, because as I've worked with people in recovery and, and done this work, you know, what I realized is what works for one person just doesn't work for the other person and you have to be really willing if you want to get in in recovery or or improve your life. You have to be willing to try yeah. different things because what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another. And then that goes to that statement of what you were saying: we're so all unique—the uh, way in which we operate in this world, the way our brains yeah. develop, the way we, the experiences we have—that it's it's hard to. I mean, there are some things we can say, but when it comes to this of more soft stuff, which is how we feel in the world and how we are meaning and our purpose. It's a little more nuanced and a little more indirect, so to speak. Well, a lot of my goals to help people demystify the stuff we can, you know, leave, leave the
2: beautiful mysteries yeah. where they are and have people have their experience. But if someone's suffering from anxiety or secondary things from addiction like, you know, seizures or sleep onset issues from alcohol or something, or there's drivers for dysregulated behavior that are gross features of sleep stress and attention. Those are things we can actually address kind of like we can go to the gym and improve our posture or our back pain or whatever else. There's the, the brain is actually more changeable dramatically more than the body. Right dramatically more. I can get you an amazing brain way faster than abs generally, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I can help you. It's, it's funny, top down, if you help the brain, it seems to help physical fitness. And believe it or not, training the brain helps my athlete clients make faster progress in their athleticism, in their muscle building, in their recovery from injuries. It's a bizarre thing that, that it tends to really impact everything. But, you know, your, your experience, just one comment, you, know, you noticed things were oddly easier. The metaphor yeah. here is if I meant, made you do curls in the gym for a few months or a, a few weeks, and then you were driving around, there was a thing in the middle of the road to move, you wouldn't be wondering about which arms, which muscles to activate in the arms to lift the rock out of the way. You'd be like, oh, crap, there's a rock in the road. I mean, stop and get that out of the way. And then you'd be heading back to your car going, huh, that was easy to move. Right. Because the resources were a bit more robust. Or you go for a walk to get a cup of coffee a month after starting your brand new gym and you're like, ooh, my balance. Oh yeah, my
1: butt. But oh I yeah. Can feel my, legs. It in my body. I'm doing, I can feel I'm... where I'm going. Yeah. So ab- When that affects sleep
2: stress and attention, the ability to control what you're thinking about, to shift gears, to think faster or slower, to turn your sleep off and on, it tends to bleed out into all aspects of your life, which is a fun, you know, benefit, so to speak, of neurofeedback. Sp- folks come in half the time for you know, symptoms and, and, and suffering right. and half the time for peak performance. But you don't get either of those things generally when working on your brain. You get everything, which is nice.
1: So. Right. It starts, to, it starts to flow out into all the different aspects of your life. Because if you can have more attention, then you can, you can complete those tasks that you wanted to complete, or you can relax, or you can get that sleep or that you need to do all that other stuff, right? Yeah. Or you can just get better efficiency from the sleep you are getting. Right. Yeah. So, so let's talk about someone maybe who comes in and they're struggling with addiction or alcoholism, mm, mm. right? And they're, what are some of the common things you see with someone who comes in struggling with that and wants to help themselves or help their brain?
2: Yeah. Alcohol is got a very, very long history with regards to neurofeedback and the, the, the field uh, addiction work for years, substance use disorders for years, have had really good effects with specifically alcohol because of what it does. Anyone who knows somebody who's been drinking for a long time knows that sort of wrung out person who's brittle, shaky, overactivated, and can't settle down, can't relax, can't turn their mind off, can't fall asleep. If they're actively using alcohol and you withdraw that person, they often have seizures or cardiovascular crises because there's this phenomena where the brain after years of receiving alcohol, well, even weeks of it, stops producing GABA, G-A-B-A, which is a neurotransmitter. Most neurotransmitters do specific things based on specific, specific circuits. But after we're finished developing, GABA is only inhibitory. It only makes things not fire in the brain. And glutamate is only excitatory. These look very similar molecules, and they bond to each other's uh, receptors, it looks like. But they're, they're balanced very, very tightly, and you can't push them around too much. And if you drive your GABA up too much, if you have a little bit of tea, GABA will be released or be encouraged and you feel calm, kind of a nice smooth feeling. That's the difference in coffee and tea, for instance. Coffee contains some caffeine, drives up glutamate, drives up dopamine a little bit, but without any GABA increase. So you're a little jittery. But tea has both L-theanine, which is a GABA releaser, and caffeine. So you get a GABA hit as well as the caffeine and you get a smooth focus as opposed to a jittery focus with regards to
1: Interesting. tea. Interesting. Yeah.
2: So in the same context, alcohol is a very powerful GABA enhancer. So that's, that's the calmness, the sedation, taking the edge off, so to speak. That's what you're feeling. You're feeling the GABA. But the body it, it tries to balance GABA and glutamate very, very tightly. And if you raise the GABA too much, you pass out. This is why alcohol right. makes you pass out. If you raise the glutamate too much, you have seizures. This is why if you've been drinking alcohol for many years... And the body's trying to fight and raise the glutamate to balance the GABA you've been ingesting, essentially. And then you withdraw that source of GABA. All you got left is glutamate, and you have seizures. You can't suppress them. Wow, okay, okay. So it's this glutamatergic or excitatory state that can't be inhibited, can't be shut down, can't be stopped. And the inhibitory thing that helps the brain relax and not have seizures, as well as do things like not be fidgety, as well as do things like sit still is a brainwave called SMR, sensory motor rhythm. So if you've seen a cat in a windowsill sitting still watching birds, that's still body and laser-like focus, that's SMR. If you train up SMR in somebody who's really shaky, the body starts to sleep again, starts to generate the GABA again, starts to turn its mind off and on again, starts to become comfortable with internal environments being a little bit erratic again, and you have inhibitory tone. So in alcohol right, specifically, right. we do SMR training and then what's called alpha-theta, which brings up the GABA deeply. It brings you to the hypnagogic edge, that edge of sleep, where the conscious mind drops away and creativity shows up and you kind of have the best ideas ever and then you fall asleep. We, mm-hmm. we do alpha-theta neurofeedback for that. And that the combination, SMR, to remediate the overactivity, the disinhibition of the brain – and the alpha-theta to re-educate the deep flow, the deep softness, the, the ability to downshift without the alcohol to summon your own GABA. Those two things together dramatically improve people's relationships with alcohol, if they're moderate or if they're not, or they're trying to be abstinent. It dramatically improves the
1: consequences, so to speak, long-term of having had al- issues with alcohol. So in a way, you're, you're training the brain system to be able to more balance itself and pull on its own resources, so to speak, to make this more balanced if it's become unbalanced from alcohol use from from mm-hmm. this, so you can you're yeah. able to kind of train pull the brain to do this on its own
2: you do and and this of course have has impact on behavior right some of the first addiction work with alcohol some of the first studies showed that the 1 year relapse rate with and without neurofeedback is reversed so the 1 year relapse rate without neurofeedback wow. is 75% roughly with it it's 25% wow that's a huge increase you know same thing with actually violent offenders basically in some research in Canada same thing 75% readmission rate after release from from incarceration, unless you add alpha theta neurofeedback for creativity and flow state, and access consciousness, and helping be comfortable with the uncomfortable emotions, and then you reverse the re, the uh, reoffense the reoffense rate. So it's a huge impact. Alpha theta, and all my creative clients, all my actors and, and athletes and things, love it because it gets you that deep juicy flow state access, like it's a doorknob you can
1: open and turn it on. So or, or step through, which is so interesting. You're saying that because I'm reflecting on myself and and as you say flow state it really feels when i can access that state easier as i've been doing this brain training oh
2: that's good to hear that's that makes some sense the brain training tends to unfold differently for people especially when there's an active substance thing going on or Mm -hmm. some history you know people have different relationships and it's really kind of an interesting thing if they're using cannabis for instance all the time or large amounts neurofeedback cuts the tolerance down without your, you know, without fail basically. So that the, um, you probably know, but I'm very deep in this area, but moderate use of a substance or even a non habit forming non addiction like television, food, sex, you know, we need, we need sort of moderation for things that are stimulating to have a good relationship with them. If we have extremes, tolerance goes up and our relationship with them is very, very slippery and stimulus driven. But if we have low you know, use amounts, we can have a glass of wine, whatever. Tolerance is is required essentially for moderate, having low tolerance required for moderate, moderate use. If you do a few right. weeks of neurofeedback, you abolish the tolerance for cannabis. Abolish wow, that's it. that's interesting. In like people who've been using it for decades. I've had like old Rasta dudes be like, shut up, dude, I've been smoking weed longer than you've been alive. And they come back, oh, you weren't kidding. My girlfriend's mad at me now. I couldn't order food at the restaurant, you know. Wow. So wow. so it changes. And alcohol too. When I used to work in addiction centers, we would do 30-day abstinence for the alcohol folks that wanted to become moderate. We would still insist on a 30-day abstinence window at the beginning just to reset that. But I did find the neurofeedback has some impact on refreshing that aspect much, much faster than the pure addiction colleagues expected, so to speak, when they saw stuff. I worked a lot with Dr.s Mark Kern and Adi Jaffe who uh Dr. Mark Kern founded Smart Recovery and also Moderation Management like 35, 40 years ago now. Yeah. And so that's my, you know, those were my experts in, in the addiction world. But I came in, helped found a company and did all the brain side of of the of that work with a, a large addiction population for several years with those those docs. And I had some addiction experience before that, but after that I was a strong believer in the one-two punch of SMR and alpha theta, especially with alcohol, because alcohol does so much damage. And when I have clients I coach on their brain performance, I'm much less concerned about almost anything except for alcohol in terms of it getting in the way. You know, if someone's using too much of a, of a recreational substance, you know, I want to figure out how it's impacting them. If it's not impacting them too too much, then I'm more concerned about them, you know, being impulsive or anxious or whatever else, not sleeping well and why they're using the damn thing. But alcohol, I'm very, very concerned about almost always because there's just no safe level for health. And it's so rewarding and it changes the brain so so much so rapidly that it's a very slippery slope into dysregulated relationships
1: with it. Wow, that's fascinating. And the yeah, so the damage it does to the brain is is uh And I see it decades intense. later. Yeah, yeah I see it see see decades it. later. Even
2: when you're sober, you know, for for years, I still see the damage. I don't see that. People that you know, we're burnt out stoners or people that abuse stimulants and you know, I, I don't see the same kind of damage with chronic substance abusers, even poly substance abusers, major stuff. If alcohol is not wow, a piece of it,
1: I don't see the long-term damage generally. Right. And what about if someone has been using alcohol and maybe they're sober now or they're struggling they're struggling to yeah. be sober, maybe they're they're yeah. having, you know, or they're working on moderation, whatever whatever mm-hmm. whatever they're trying to do. Do you see the ability for the brain to repair that damage, or I guess adapt to that?
2: Oh, there's very large changes. I'll show you next time we're in front of a Zoom together. I'll show you some pre-post slides. But yeah, um, generally in chronic alcoholics, not binge drinkers who drink occasionally mm-hmm. large amounts, but people that drink even moderate amounts routinely, or which is usually higher amounts routinely, eventually. Right. Those brains are the ones that I tend to see classic stuff in, and you look at their brains even sometimes decades after becoming sober. And you see huge amounts of beta waves everywhere, which is just an activated state. You see huge amounts of hypercoherence or overconnected beta between regions The you can't let go. And you see low amounts of things like deltas and alphas, low amounts of downshift or sleep or relaxation. And this com- people come in like this. It's very, very classic. It's a very robust phenomenon in the literature. I see it all the time, when whenever someone comes in that way, I, I'm you know kind of guessing I'll see that before I see it, and generally about three months of neurofeedback, about forty to fifty sessions, can make wow. two standard deviations of change dramatically in their data permanently. Get the person is sleeping very huge. very well that's a eliminate lot of seizures it's a huge amount of change the seizure literature says the seizure reduction in seizures in general is 50 percent in neurofeedback i've never seen a result that poor in seizures of any sort and an alcohol driven seizure stuff it's much much better result than that because the brain stabilizes there's no drivers of the seizure phenomena but no i see amazing results in you know three months roughly yeah. Now, depending on what's going on with the substances, neurofeedback is not the only thing you should be doing because substances are insidious and they tend to be you know learning reinforcers themselves. So what I would suggest is someone figure out what their path is. And if your path is moderation, you know, join moderation management. Grab the workbook. If your path is abstinence, join smart, join AA, whatever works for you, find the The alignment for you. I'm not a huge fan of AA just because I've seen it, you know, to me it feels a little culty and it's a little religious, which I'm not super big, you know, fan of. But I've seen it help people profoundly. I'm more of a fan of SMART. But that's just a personal perspective. I like having options to recommend folks to. I also am a huge fan of uh, MBRP, Mindfulness-Based Relapse Prevention as a mindfulness way of doing almost a CBT thing and working with a therapist and a mindfulness coach to help you, you know, remove the triggers and automatic behaviors around this stuff, which is sort
1: of the smart recovery way anyways. Right. And I would say all these things, you know, when I look at them, they're all tools that a person can use to better their life, optimize their life, bring more happiness to their life, more fulfillment, more satisfaction. It's like, find what works, go for it. Try it. If it doesn't work, try something else. Absolutely, yeah, and
2: and and that's sort of key to not just in addiction but in many things. I'm a big fan of, oh, your brain isn't doing what you want. Okay, let's figure out why. Let's let's try some stuff. Let's iterate. So I I, I yeah. joke that I don't sell neurofeedback. I sell agency. I sell demystification. I'll help you understand your brain, and I'll you know, maybe I'll suggest some neurofeedback, but I will also just generally help you understand what's going on a little more than, and in a different role than maybe your doctor did or your psychologist did, because I'm not either of those things. I'm, I I call what we do functional neuroscience, but essentially it's a coaching thing. It just happens to have aspects of science in it where, you know, like your coach at the gym might help you learn about your, your nutrition a little bit, and they're not a dietitian, but they know about how to help you intermittent fast or cut carbs and raise protein because, you know, to improve your performance or something, you know, they, they, they know some of the tricks. That's, that's our team. We, we kind of have the best practices. We keep an eye on the research. We keep an eye on what works for clients and we advise in the sleep, stress, attention, hacking stuff, which for us, neurofeedback's a heavy lifter. But if you came in with other needs, I might send you off to someone who does hyperbaric medicine or who's a therapist or as a, you know, just because I, we're not everything for all people but we are the
1: the place to demystify your brain a little bit. So there's my, there's my, well, that, there, there you go. That's awesome, Andrew. So there's one question before we wrap up. I always like to ask yeah. every, every person one question. If okay. someone out there is struggling and you could tell them one thing, right? What would you want to tell them? What would you want to say to them? Depending on how they're struggling,
2: I would say that, one of the most insidious things about brain and mind stuff is that we feel like things are not going to change, and that is just not true. The brain you know, shift happens. Get yours; like it's going to change. It's not a question of if; it's how. So while things can be difficult, resources can be pinched. You know, things iterate, things shift, things move, and you will always have an opportunity to increment, to lean in, to make small changes. You might need help with it. You might need other tools, but. Very, very little of our human experience is a rigid, fixed, static phenomena. And our suffering is definitely stuff that tends to change because we attach to negativity. Our brain is the cost of missing danger so high. You miss a tiger once. That's it. Game over. But you can miss lovely, sexy, yummy things all day long. There's more tomorrow. So we tend to, when we're in the dreck, when we're in the crisis, in the thing, we identify the moment as being those things because it's so important to do so. But the human, creative human mind is sometimes not so good at then dropping that perspective because the cost of missing it next time is high. So we latch onto it. We have this negativity bias. That means that when we're depressed, when we're in crisis, when we're traumatized, when we're six beers in, when we didn't want to drink that day, you know, we have to remember this is not how things necessarily will be, even though it feels like this
1: is how things are. So shift happens is my my watchword for the brain. I love it. I love that. I love that. That's, all, that's awesome. How can people find you, find more information about you if they want to connect with you or ask you questions or learn more? Yeah. So Peak Brain Institute is our main website
2: and we have an Instagram and other social medias. We're all at Peak Brain LA just because that was our first office. Although we're, we have a New York City office at St. Louis. We have a couple in Orange County one that you go to. We have a uh, Los Angeles We also do most of our work fully virtually. So a lot of our clients never see our offices and just get equipment sent to them and work from home and have live coaches supporting them. And all your listeners can get a discount on our remote programs as well. We'll we'll include that. But uh, yeah, just look us up. If you want to see lots of like pictures of me making food, that's my Instagram, but that's not super exciting. So uh, (laughs) Big Big Brain LA has good brain stuff on there. And uh, you can hit us up on the website and the chat box and stuff. So
1: yeah. Great! I will put all of that information in the show notes at theaddictivemind.com. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your wisdom and your experience. Oh, I just really my appreciate pleasure, it. sir. My pleasure. Nice talking
2: to you, Dwayne. I will talk to you soon. You take care of that brain.
0: All right. See ya. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. There you can find all the contact information for Dr. Andrew Hill and the Peak Brain Institute. Don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, share it with a friend or write a review wherever you get your podcast. I do read them. Actually, on Apple, I think we're at almost 400 reviews. I can't believe it. That is pretty amazing to me. And so all the people that have left a review, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for doing that. And join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind Podcast. Click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful day. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.